Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Voice of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, and uh, I am honored to announce our first segment for tonight, which is an Age of Heroes segment, uh, hosted by Michael Del Russi, who will be paying tribute to his brother, Sam Del Russi. Greetings, Michael. How are you? Greetings, Hercules, and thank you so much for uh, granting me this time uh, that I can talk about my brother and his incredible art. I'm honored. Um, uh, well, he passed away on the 11th of August. Uh, he lived in New Mexico, Taos, for some 20 years, uh, from Montclair, New Jersey, originally. Uh, he was very happy there, and uh, Taos just inspired his uh, artistic spirit, if you will, and his creativity just exploded out there. Uh, he had been in a rehabilitation home for about a year. I don't know exactly uh why he was there i know he was very sick uh, he was in a coma as a matter of fact from what i understand but he recovered and he was painting furiously from the home i don't know what transpired after that uh but i understand that it transferred him to a hospital out there presbyterian hospital and i had just found out last week he had succumbed to liver failure and a cardiac event I'm sorry. Uh, so his daughter has just arrived out there now, today, a few hours ago. Uh, she's a beautiful person uh, in her own right. She makes uh, handcrafted jewelry, and she takes after her dad in so many ways. Uh, so I know she may be trying to listen at this point. Uh, I, I asked her if to call in, and so we'll see how it goes. I think there's a three-hour difference. But, I, I believe um, yeah, but uh, we grew up in uh, Newark, New Jersey. His personality was always one of great curiosity. Uh, we were a year apart. I'm 67. He was 66. And right from the start, uh, you know, you and I have discussed the bicameral mind and 
I believe very strongly that it answers a lot of questions in terms of our decision-making, our behavior, uh, and what part of that hemisphere of the mind were more is more dominant in our personalities. In my case, I think I was more right brain uh, because I was horrible in shop. I couldn't put <laughs> I couldn't put a nail in the wall. <laughs> you know, I was terrible at technical stuff. Uh, my brother, as artistic as he was, was also very good at technical things. I watched him take alarm clocks apart and put them back together. His curiosity was evenly balanced, if you will, be- between the technical aspects of life and the ethereal aspects of life. So he was uh, kind of uh, more balanced than I was in that area. Uh, his favorite TV shows were The Prisoner. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, Patrick I McGowan. That. Yes, I remember that show. Yeah, it was. A, it started out as a summer replacement and developed a, a, a devoted cult following, if you will. And as a matter of fact, sometimes public TV runs the entire series. It was an amazing series. And he enjoyed The Invaders with Roy Thinnes. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, uh, I remember that too. Yes, Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, they were all some of his favorite uh, TV programs. I think the beginnings of his art started around 1966 in the pre-Golden Age of Marvel. Uh, We used to collect DC Comics as well, but Marvel captured our interest, and that's when he started sketching from the comic books. He was sketching Iron Man, Ant-Man, Submariner. I'm sure you're familiar with most of those characters. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, Spider-Man. And my parents noticed his talent. So for a brief period of time, he took art classes at Arts High in Newark, New Jersey, uh, for a few, actually for only a few weeks. But uh, he was actually self-taught. I mean, he taught, you know, from his uh, early teens. Uh, Later, from the years between 1966 and 68, his influences came from a variety of magazines. I don't know if you recall Eerie and Creepy. And Zamparella, yes. How could, I, how could I not know those? Those were awesome. Absolutely. Amazing magazines uh, by the Warren Publications. And he was just he was just uh, completely enamored by the artwork and the stories. And he continued to sketch from those magazines. Not trace, but sketch. And so that's how he really developed his talent. Uh, he was also uh, over the top with Dr. Strange. Uh, and I, I can Artwork, yes, his artwork uh, uh, conjured images of the early Doctor Strange uh, comics. Absolutely, you know the dimensional travel and Steve Ditko, uh, who Steve Ditko, Steve did have an amazing style, really all his own, and uh, the dimensions that he would draw, and the, some of the characters, uh, it, it was just amazing, and that was really, I think, what caused an explosion in my brother's own. Uh, imagine an imagination process, if you will, where the mm-hmm. other dimensional uh, depictions of Steve Gitko and uh, Doctor Strange. He also admired Jack Kirby, uh, Wally Wood, uh, and some of these guys. Uh, but uh, Steve Gitko was a major, major influence in most of the art. And then the, in the paranormal and UFO phenomenon, uh, he sketched from Fate Magazine, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. Uh, that was when Mary Margaret Fuller started the magazine. And there were also uh, magazines like True and Argosy, 
which were adventure magazines. My father used to bring them home. My father used to work the graveyard shift at, shift at night, and he brought these magazines home. And these magazines were chock full of photographs and stories uh, depicting UFO events. So he started sketching flying saucers and alien crafts of various kinds. Uh, they were also a major influence. Uh, so between 1966 and 69, we began to publish our own little. At that time, they were called fanzines, yeah. and we would we would mimeograph them, and I'm sure you remember that. I remember and, those. Days. I used to do the same. I used to um, have my own fanzines. I used to publish as well. Really, what what were you publishing at that time? I'm curious. Um, the one that had the widest circulation and the longest run was called Void Warrior, uh, Warrior of the, you know the Starry Void, and uh, it was mostly Star Trek and other um, pop culture, uh, UFO and outer space based, uh, uh, both fact and fiction. That's that's interesting. Do you have any copies left? Somewhere in a box in the basement. I'm sure <laughs> I have. <laughs> You know, uh, my just before he passed, we talked about that. Our biggest heartache, if you will, we don't have any copies left. <laughs> oh. Yeah, we we had moved from uh, from uh, Nutley to East Rutherford, and we had them all piled in a box. And our our mother, God rest her soul, unfortunately, uh, she didn't like all the stuff hanging around. And I think we more or less either they were discarded or they were left there. Uh, so that was our biggest regret, and uh, I wish we would have had some of those copies left, uh, because it would have been it would have been a big kick for the both of us. Definitely, my my parents threw out a lot of my things uh, also, so I sympathize. Um, <laughs> and after I left my parents, I kept everything. I obsessively I kept everything I wrote or anything I did. So now I have boxes of stuff I need to go through one day. Um, lately, I've been taking them out, dusting them off, polishing them up a bit, and getting them published. So uh, I, I wish that, uh, or I hope that you find somewhere some of your writings. That's that's exciting, and I'd love to see some of your work. I doubt that I'll ever be able to recover anything. I mean, uh, it's cities and years away, but it's our. It, we always talked about it was our biggest regret. Back in, I believe, 1967, I'm pretty sure I'm right in a year, we started our own little UFO group. And we oh. published, yeah, uh, UIFOB it was called. And we published a new fanzine called Flying Saucers Unlimited. And that's where things really took off. And as you know, that was considered more or less kind of like the golden age of flying saucers. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we had a great time. I mean, it came to the point where some of the tough guys in high school were paying us 50 cents to join and get the magazine, <laughs> which was pretty cool. And yeah. uh, again, we don't have a copy left, but I would do the writing. He would do the art. And we covered everything from George Adamski uh, to Major Donald Kehoe. And um, he was he uh, ran NICAP, the National Investigations Committee yeah. of Aerial Phenomena in Washington. I'm sure you're familiar with him. And he was a groundbreaker when he first published his book, uh, flying saucers from outer space, and we would write reviews and commentary on his work. And again, you know, my brother would do the art as imaginative as it was, 
And uh, we did that for about two years. And it was a lot of fun. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it was. So from then on, I went and stopped into a stationery store. This was, again, around 1967. And lo and behold, I come across a digest, science fiction digest. I had never seen one before. And there on the stands was a, a, a digest called Galaxy Science Fiction. And uh, there was also another one called Amazing Stories. I understand that Amazing Stories was really came before Galaxy, but I happened to favor Galaxy. And mm-hmm. I brought that home, and that was another major inspiration. From that point on, we decided to publish our own science fiction fanzines. And we had did one called Incredible, we did one called Universe, and we did one called Stupendous. So we wow. were at the kitchen. Yeah, we were at the kitchen table quite a bit late at night, early in the morning. And my brother was even more of a workaholic here than I was. Uh, He was just incredible. I mean, uh, his mind was constantly going. And uh, his his level of curiosity was off the charts and it was constant. Uh, Again, he left me in the dust uh, in these areas. And so we published those. I did most of the writing and he did most of the artwork. And it was fantastic. We just had the, it was the best time of our lives. Uh, you know, and it mostly we were influenced in the paranormal. Uh, mm-hmm. and, if, and again, Fate Magazine was a major influence there. That, that sounds uh, very wonderful. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a, a very sore throat today. Uh, <clears throat> And we're going to be investigating UFOs again and uh, reviewing UFO books and doing things like that in the very near future. So mm-hmm. I'll invite you over and we'll discuss that. And if you want to get involved, I'd love to have you involved. I would love to. You know, I'm I'm pretty familiar with uh, most of the classic cases. My brother was especially fascinated with the uh, uh, Zarako case where there was a landing yeah. in New Mexico. And I'm sure um, Lonnie Zamora, who was a state trooper, had witnessed this, a very reliable witness. Uh, There were indentations in the ground as as well as radioactivity. And that was one of his uh, uh, more uh, 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 interesting cases, if you will. He had a great interest in that case because of uh, the validity of it. And then we had Betty and Barney Hill. Uh, That... The case ultimately seems to be authentic. Uh, It's been investigated and reinvestigated many times. And so we would sit at the kitchen table for hours and talk about these things. And then we would have meetings. We had uh, eight or ten members, I would say, as I recall, and we would have meetings. And we would discuss the three levels of uh, contact. Contact, uh, you know, uh, of the first kind, the second kind, and the third kind. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, we would discuss those these things for hours. And even the two major organizations we would discuss. There was NICAP, and then from Arizona, I believe, there was APRO, which was started by a married couple. And mm-hmm. we would discuss how one group recognized uh, close encounters of the third kind. The other group wasn't too sure. And we would discuss the variances between the two groups. And it was just a remarkable time in our lives and a major influence in our lives. So between the Marvel comics and the UFO phenomenon and some of the, the fantastic, he was especially enamored with the invaders. Uh, uh-huh. Have you ever seen any episodes of that TV program? 
I must have. Uh, it, it rings a bell very strongly, but I don't recall very much of it. Yeah, that was uh, architect Roy. Th- uh, Roy it was uh, played by the ad actor by the name of Roy Thennis. He played a character called David Vincent, who was driving home one night and saw a UFO landing. It was a Quinn Martin production. At that time, Quinn Martin was pretty famous for, uh, for I think, The Fugitive as well. And from that point on, the aliens tried to hunt him down. And the only way you could tell the aliens from human beings is their index finger was crooked. Okay. <laughs> and when you shot, <laughs> and when you shot them and killed, it vaporized. That sounds very familiar. So I'm sure I caught an episode or three um, uh, in my uh, my viewing of that type of show. Uh, there were a lot and, of great shows. Uh, oh, that was tremendous. Do you remember The Outer Limits? Yes, The Outer Limits I remember very well. Yeah, well, that was another one of his major influences. And it was just his mind was always so curious. And uh, I think that's that was that was what catapulted him to other areas of creativity is is amazing curiosity. Uh, even in here up until the last years, uh, he was fascinated with the multiverse theories, the string theory, and how uh-huh. it all tied together. And I guess I'm, I'm sure you've had programs on that or have researched that. Uh, yes, sir. At, We'll have even more on that uh, in the days ahead. Mm-hmm. And they were another, they were uh, his major influence as well. Uh, he started off uh, it's very simply with colored pencils and some oils and then graduated to airbrush. And uh, again, he had no formal lessons whatsoever, uh, but he just exploded with the airbrush. And most of what you see online, in fact, I believe all of it is airbrush work. It's very unique and distinctive. It did conjure up uh, Doctor Strange and some of the the parallel universes uh, in that it doesn't appear to take place in the physical plane. It seems to take place in the etheric or the astral plane, uh, his artwork that I saw. Uh, And it's very evocative and it's very beautifully done. And he's published uh, online stages of the work's development. So you get to see the work evolve and change. And... Uh, I'm very uh, grateful to witness the process of the creation of these masterpieces. Well, thank you so much, and uh, I thank you for giving for for recognizing it and giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, again, I saw his progression from the very simple things and the characters, and he, he also had somewhat of an. He wasn't where you and I were in terms of he didn't really care to work out with the weights too much. But he also uh-huh. did, he, he wasn't much of a weightlifter, but he did enjoy the Peplum films. I remember going to the West Side Theater in Newark, New Jersey, and we saw most of the Reg Park films there. Uh, I remember vividly going to see Hercules and the Captive Women uh-huh. uh, and uh, some of the other Peplum films, and we went together, and he enjoyed them. He enjoyed them. Again, he wasn't much for uh, weightlifting himself, but he enjoyed the whole uh, concept and the Greek mythologies and the you know the the vehicle of mythology. He enjoyed that as well. Uh, so you know we shared we shared this intense interest together, and uh, it's just something I'll carry on for the rest of my life. And uh, it was just a great time for us. Um, and uh, uh, that's really the 
extent of it in terms of his growth, of his growth from, again, the crayons and the colored pencils and the black and white art, which he also appreciated. He really did appreciate the black and white art that was an eerie and creepy. And during that period of time, do you remember in the 70s, uh, the black and white, it was eight and a half by 11 Conan magazines? Oh, yes, I have all of them. (laughs) Do you? Yeah, every single issue of Conan, not the pulps. I never went back and collected the pulps, although I've uh, collected reprints of what was in the pulps. But I have Conan from the day he first appeared in Marvel um, all the way till now. I, I've been collecting Conan for that long. Really? I only have uh, issues that I purchased, and I purchased them online uh, the, the most of the 80s. But the 70s, again, somehow in the process of moving and what have you, I lost them. Uh, but yeah. you have uh, a large collection, then I would imagine, of the black and white magazine that Marvel published at that time? Yes, I do. The Savage uh, Sword of uh, Conan. And before yeah. that, it was Savage Tales that he appeared in. And actually, um, a week ago, we had a Conan artist. Um, on the show, he he did some of the the smaller comic books uh, with Conan. Really? And uh, yes, yes, uh, and it was a great uh, a Charles Santino. Okay, I'm name. not familiar with the name. That's interesting. And uh, we also had on uh, last month a uh, the creator and artist for Dagar the Invincible. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, uh, I don't. Sort of what? Where did that character originate from? In Gold Key. Gold he Key. Was, <laughs> You're bringing uh, back some memories. Gold yeah, Key. Yeah. yeah, I remember. I remember the comic. That's a, and what? What was the basis of that character? What do you remember? What the uh, yeah, uh, nature of Donald, that character was? A Donald Glute character. He was a short-haired blonde uh, barbarian. And he didn't consider himself a, a barbarian because his people had once been civilized. Like the Sumerians and Conan were once civilized Atlanteans way back when. Right. And his people were civilized and still retained some of the trappings of uh, their ancient civilization. So even though his appearance and his tropes were very uh, sword and sorcery, uh, he always uh, corrected people when they called him a barbarian. But it was typical barbarian fare, and I, I enjoyed it. It was a, a different take on the, uh, on Conan, like Brack the Barbarian and Kothar and Kirik and right. Thangor and Kull and all, all those uh, um, you know, great uh, uh, homages to Robert E. Howard's character. Right, right, right. No, I'm not familiar. That's interesting. I'll have to look him up. Do you remember Charlton Comics? Yes, I do. They had a Hercules series. I have those too. Amazing. Well, you have your collection is much more vast than mine at this point. Charlton was an interesting line. They tried. They tried. Yes. And they had some, some interesting characters. Do you remember Atlas, uh, the Atlas line of comics? I don't think that I do. Can you tell me something about them quickly? Uh, sure. They uh, came out, I guess, in the 70s and didn't last for very long. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had done a few barbarian uh, ones. I think Ironshaw and Wolf the Slayer. Uh, I'm not positive about the second one, what he was called. But uh, 
those two were, you know, uh, Iron Joe lived in post-apocalyptic America. Okay. And Wolf Slayer uh, lived in another dimension, I think. But they tried, too. Um, and uh, they had other titles like Tiger Man and uh, Phoenix. and uh, uh, But, again, it only lasted for a few issues. Then it, it stopped. I and the, uh, what was the name of that comic uh, uh, again? The com- the company, I mean, the publishers. Atlas, A T L A S. That should be easy to remember. <laughs> well, you know something. I know one of his favorite uh, sword and sandal films was Gordon Mitchell, Atlas in the Land of the Cyclops. Remember that film? Yeah, yeah I had that one in my collection. That's a awesome film. Yeah, I thought that was one of probably Gordon Mitchell's best. My brother loved that, especially when it came to the part of the when he dueled the Cyclops. Yes, I agree. That's an excellent uh, sword and sandal film. Um, why yes. didn't your brother pursue a career in in comics? Because his art is beautiful. I wish I had an answer to that. I don't. I don't know why he didn't take the next step. I mean, uh, yeah, his his artwork has been admired really uh, the world over. Really, he's got he received letters from Czechoslovakia, and I don't wow. know why. I know he loved the comics. Uh, there were two two characters. I'll I'll be quick on this. They weren't really strength heroes, but he they fascinated him. Besides Doctor Strange, outside of the Marvel uh, field, and that was the Blue Beetle. With Charlton, you remember the Blue Beetle? Yes, I remember. He he made it to DC eventually. Yes, he did. I kind of found him interesting myself. And do you remember a character called the Question? Oh, I loved the Question when I was growing up. Those got lost in moves and things like that. My entire collection of the Question, but I used to follow the Question religiously. I loved that comic. Absolutely, what he loved about it, uh, probably the same things you did. There was always a moral tone to what the question did and how what he believed and he was a very interesting character uh and and there was always like this deeper meaning to mm-hmm. what he felt and what he believed and uh how he carried himself and that uh, my brother was fascinated by that there was a, a great depth to his personality to his persona if you will and my brother was captivated by that in terms of his character. I mean, he didn't have a lot of superpowers or anything like that, but he was a very mysterious character, if you will. Yeah, I enjoyed that type of character a lot, the ones that are a bit unique and different and and stand out uh, from the crowd. Um, And my inner journey, too, has been informed by these same uh, uh, figures in popular culture. This is our modern mythology, and we're very blessed to be alive in a time where we're watching it uh, basically spread throughout the world, like the mythologies did in antiquity. Well, I agree. And I think we were also extremely blessed. And he said this to me not too many years ago. He said, you know, Mont, he said, we were very lucky to grow up during the time that we did. When all of this, these genres were just coming into fruition. They were just yeah. being born. Marvel and Conan was being... It was being brought to the uh, uh, forefront of the American uh, public, if you will. And I, I'm leaving somebody out, by the way. Do you remember Doc Savage? Yes, of course. <laughs> we were so fascinated when we walked into a Woolworths in Irvington, New Jersey, where we lived. And uh, there on, remember? 
Yes, I remember those. I, I had a number of those as well at one point. Uh, the Doc Savages, the paperbacks. I used to get yes. them as they came out. Yes. Uh, he would not miss an issue. He would not miss an issue. Uh, he just loved Doc Savage, as I did too. He was a strength hero, but he has that, that, that team behind him. And the, the stories were fascinating. My brother was a big Doc Savage fan. That never uh, successfully translated for long into comics. There were several attempts uh, to bring him to comics, uh, but the, he never quite made it for long. You're absolutely right. Very successful with the paperbacks. Yeah. But didn't do much in the comic uh, genre for whatever reason. Yeah, it was the same in, in Sword and Sorcery. Conan uh, is the only figure that's endured. There have been dozens of uh, uh, Conan... Um, clones, I guess, or homages to Conan. Um, but yeah, and there, some of them were great in their way, and I greatly enjoyed reading about them and uh, um, learning about them and so forth. But uh, Conan is the one that endures. He was the first, and uh, it looks like he's going to be the last of the great barbarian heroes. Absolutely, I think Conan will live on uh, infinitely because yes, he's he's that. Uh, well-known and that popularized. I know Doc Savage, they've been talking about making Doc Savage into a movie several times. It yeah, hasn't yeah. happened yet. Uh, perhaps it will. Do you know the story of uh, Conan's creation? Uh, I don't, as a matter of fact. I don't, but you're going to have to enlighten me on that. I, I will definitely do so. Robert E. Howard was having a dry spell creatively. Mm -hmm. uh, he in writer's block and he couldn't come up with any ideas um, so this went on for a number of days and stretched into weeks and he was getting very concerned because he earned his living as a writer right. so one day while he's sitting there as a typewriter just waiting to see what comes into his head uh, he saw Conan materialize and Conan threatened him into writing and <laughs> Conan recounted some of his tales <laughs> So, yeah, he the, the first two Conan stories were from this figure of Conan, uh, and after he uh, um, you know sent them in, they got published, uh -huh. and then he took some unpublished cult tales and other unpublished tales and Conanized them the same way he took the rejected Conan uh, manuscripts that he sent and turned them into other heroes for different periods, and they they might sell there. Um, a lot of his heroes were interchangeable, uh, especially, you know, the action uh, heroes. Um, right. And uh, they could appear at any period in time uh, with minor modifications. But that's how Conan came to be. Conan appeared to him and threatened him <laughs> into writing. So, um, and Conan very quickly made it into the public imagination um, and captivated people's imagination. So th there was always that mystical aspect uh, to Conan that uh, he demanded to be born. And, uh, you know, he sport his way. And despite numerous obstacles, uh, um, he's still here. Uh, I wish a hero would materialize for me. <laughs> I would love to experience that once. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I didn't know that story. I didn't know it. Have well, you ever written? written any yes. uh, heroes or barbarians or have you ever written tales like that no uh we have uh, we ha did create our own comic characters however uh, we had uh -huh. saucer man 
I remember vividly. Uh, he created one called the Rajanoid, which was quite an interesting character. So we did create some archa- but I've never actually created my own pulp character. I'm an old man now, but maybe it's not too late. <laughs> it, it's definitely not too late. I've run, I've wanted to write sword and sorcery and sword and sandal uh, for a long time. I, I did it like in a science fiction context here and there, uh, uh-huh. but uh, um, some of my other guests on the show. Uh, send me some links to a sword and sorcery online magazine, so I really? might uh, I might look for my old writings. So I have a few sword and sorcery heroes that I wrote a few stories about. I might if I find them, I might take them out, dust them up, polish them up, uh, expand on them a bit, and send them out there and see if some of these uh, uh, old uh, figures can come to life uh, now. You know, I'm in my 60s too. I'm 61. Okay. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's still plenty of time. It's never too late, and I, I wish you would do that. And I, I wish I wish to goodness that I had some of my old stuff in these other areas just to look at. But that I think that would be fantastic. You know, I want to thank you for this time. I know we're almost out of time, which is about out of time, for giving me a chance to reminisce. I don't think uh, the reality that my brother is not going to be here, at least in the physical plane, to share these things with, but I know he appreciated the time we did grow up together, and he said to me many times, Mike, be, I'm so grateful we grew up during the time that we did. And I guess that's the best way I can end this, and I want to thank you. He would be, he would be so thrilled to meet you, to listen to your program, and to see the venue that you have provided for all of us who think the way we do and love the pulps and love discussing the paranormal and uh, everything else that's involved in that. So I know he would just love your program if he was here today. So I thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk about him. And I thank you, too, for your awesome friendship and uh, for all uh, that you contribute to this show. Um, I will speak with you soon, my friend. Um, Forgive my uh, raspy voice today, and I'll talk to you soon. Please get well. Get well. I certainly will. I, I, I don't get sick very often, but when I do, it's epic. Uh, so I'm going yeah, to It's a terrible those. time to get a cold, isn't it, during the summer? It's uh, not a great time to be sick. No, this is going around. My son had it a week or so ago. And really? It's the same, yeah, it, it takes around a week to work its way through your system. Um, well, so take a lot I'm of vitamin C and zinc. Yes. <laughs> and meditation and tea and honey and... Uh, all those good things. Well, your Be voice well, sounds good, all things considered. Your voice, you sound good. Thank you, my friend. Take good care. Thank you, and thank you so much. Okay, good night. And bye-bye now. For, just bye-bye, Michael. Uh, we're going to listen to Bone Post Orchestra's Evolve, and then we'll go to our next segment.
Greetings and welcome back to Voice of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, and today our show is dedicated to optimal wellness and the peplum genre. Um, I'm here to talk about mythic physique, which is what I call my own unique quest to optimal wellness. What is your idea of the ideal body? Mine has always been the mythic physique depicted in the sword and sandal films that were popular during my childhood. This heroic template was in turn inspired by the Greco-Roman statuary that depicted my Olympian ancestors. Both cinema and sculpture celebrated the mighty ones of old, the doers of great deeds. I'm currently in my early 60s and no longer is able to lift heavy weights as I once was in my youth. However, I'm determined to embody and express my ideal physique to the best of my ability for the remainder of my years. And you're invited to accompany me on this quest through this podcast and to share the details of your own journey um, on Facebook or in this podcast as well. Now, um, what I'd like to share with you is some of the book reviews we've conducted over the years. And we will start with Ecstatic Body. Based on groundbreaking life work of religious anthropologist Dr. Felicitas Goodman, this unique tome by metaphysician Belinda Gore reveals a new spiritual dimension worth exploring by every metaphysical sojourner. The premise is simple. Early societies left us detailed instructions on accessing alternative realities via the postures assumed by human figures in their sacred art. The author and her group, utilizing universal and very basic shamanic techniques, have experimented with figures from hunting, gathering, and early agricultural periods in our history. The result is ecstatic body postures, a wonderful introduction to this exciting new field. It has long been known that assuming certain body postures can unleash specific feelings and emotions. For instance, habitually standing tall and walking proud will definitely increase your self-confidence. And anyone familiar with New Age thought or acting can tell you that becoming what you imitate to a degree greater than you could have imagined. Totemic shamanism, which I practice, uses the self-same principle in what they call shape-shifting. Ecstatic body postures takes this thinking a step further. There are postures for healing, divination, metempsychosis, spirit journeys, initiation, living myth, and celebration. As an Olympian heroic path practitioner, I could not wait to attempt the traditional Hercules poses of archaic and classical Greco-Roman antiquity. There was a Greek youth posture in the book, so I started with that, as Hercules was often depicted as a beardless youth in archaic art. My next experiment was the Farnese Hercules, my operant archetype's most famous depiction. Fortunately, my library contained the tome Heracles, Passage of the Hero, through a thousand years of classical art, so I had a lot of material to work with beyond that. After several months of fruitful experimentation, I began to wonder, what would happen if I used these archaic shamanic techniques while assuming the signature poses a more modern interpretation of Hercules? Why not try embodying the sword and sandal movie Hercules or the Marvel Comics Hercules? These images inspired my life path and still resonate powerfully in the deepest recesses of my being. What would be the effects of assuming these postures on my physique and psyche? And what alternate worlds would it transport me to? 
I endeavored to find out. I started the both arms and head raised while addressing the gods pose of the Peplum Hercules. Rick Park was my model as he did it superbly. Almost immediately, I felt I was a conduit of great power or its vessel. I was neither of heaven nor of earth, but something in between, partaking of both worlds, but fully belonging to neither. Powerful stuff, well worth exploring at greater length. I will definitely stick with this position until I've exhausted its possibilities. And to think, there are so many more to experiment with after that. I wrote this uh, back in originally 2013, I believe, and I am honored to announce I'm still practicing these ecstatic uh, body postures, and uh, I've learned a lot from them and continue to learn uh, a lot by practicing them. A book was written a few years later called The Ecstatic Experience, Healing Postures for Spirit Journeys by Belinda Gore, same author. About a decade ago, uh, I'm reading you from the review, so I'll be repeating some of the past review. Uh, about a decade ago, I became aware of Belinda Gore's perspective-altering book, Ecstatic Body Postures. The tome, which is based on the bold theories of anthropologist Dr. Felicitas Goodman, demonstrated how various ecstatic states can be accessed by assuming the body postures depicted in prehistoric, aboriginal, and ancient art. There were many postures to experiment with, an experiment I did. After a few years, I settled on three, all strongly associated with Hercules, and they became part of my daily fitness ritual. Transitional between these exercises eventually grew into a moving meditation, and I also found, much to my delight, that after a while I could enter the ecstatic trance rather quickly, sometimes even while in the process of assuming the postures. I love the system, wrote a long review of the book, which is still proudly posted on my Mythic Physique website and which I've just repeated on my podcast. A modified version of ecstatic trance became a key component in my Olympian spiritual practice. Every now and then, I revisited and modified the review. Recently, I discovered that I seem to have outgrown one of the postures, and so I began experimenting again. Fortunately, Belinda Gore wrote a sequel, and so I did not need to return to my well-worn copy of Ecstatic Body Postures. The ecstatic experience, whose awesomeness even extends to the evocative cover art, broadens and streamlines the shamanic theories and practices presented in an earlier book and offers a wealth of new postures from cultures scattered throughout the globe and human history. It provides an excellent portal for those who are newbies to altered states and an excellent expansion for those who already practice the art. The categories synchronize with those in EBP, healing, divination, metamorphosis, spirit journey, and initiation, which is very helpful. All but one posture can be formed alone. I don't know if any of the postures in the ecstatic experience will eventually become part of my daily routine, but it has certainly contributed greater depth to the already existing journey. And the audio CD of trance rhythm included with the book further enhances the trip. Thanks again, Belinda Gore. Um, as uh, you can tell, I experiment a lot. Um, and, uh, I modify what I experiment with so that it uh, more effectively allows me to explore uh, the different categories. And my spiritual experiences are as uh, important to me as my mental experiences and my physical experience. So I've 
exercises in uh, those categories, and occasionally I stray beyond them with uh, other categories. Uh, I believe in constant uh, experimentation. And uh, with that, I will play uh, Castalia Alexandrians, I believe. Or will I? Let's see. I think I played that when I wasn't. Uh, um, we'll play Open to the Elements by Castalia Alexander.
And now I'm greatly honored to announce our guest for the second half of tonight's show, um, the legendary Bill Hinburn of Super Strength uh, Training. Greetings, Bill. How are you? Not bad. How are you, Hercules? I caught a virus, <laughs> uh, and it's laid me out for a few days. Yes, I, I don't get sick very often, but when I get sick, I get sick ethically. So uh, I'm recovering, uh, but it knocked me out for a few days so far. Hmm. Sorry to hear that. That's okay. It happens, and uh, it it leaves you stronger for the next thing that hits you. And how are you? Fine, thanks. The uh, weather is changing. It's starting to go into fall. Leaves on the trees. You think the climate change will affect uh, this transition of seasons? Um, well, you know, it, it, it amazes me, and this, of course, is generally speaking, how short a memory people have, you know. Um, each season that changes, you know, they act uh, as if uh, they've never gone through it before, you know. Just like this past summer. Oh, my gosh, it was so hot. We've had summers that were hot, or the summer was cool. And, of course, the spring. We had a, uh, uh, you know, summer uh, started a little late this year. Well, that's happened before. And and, um, uh, there are times that we have what they refer to as an Indian summer. You know, it'll be cool in the beginning of uh, September, and then suddenly we'll have this... uh, this hot weather in the third week of September or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, climate change is, is something that's been going on since the beginning of time. Um, if you do any research, which I did, um, because people have said, Oh, well, our, our species of animals are, uh, close to extinction. Many of them are in the danger. You know, there's only 100 of them, though. There's only 1,000 of them where there used to be 10,000 and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Uh, if you do research, and I'm saying genuine research, not these, uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 sites with an agenda or what have you, if you do genuine research on very good uh, uh, sites from a scientific you know, point of view, uh, if you go back to the beginning of the Earth, of what they can determine, the uh, life has been nearly wiped out no less than five times. Right. And when I say wiped out, it, it, like 70 or 80 percent of the life at that particular time was eliminated. It's like the dinosaurs. Okay, you had an asteroid hit the uh, hit the Earth, and uh, the volcanic ash or whatever, uh, you know, whatever, it blocked the sun. And consequently, the average temperature on Earth dropped 5 or 10 degrees. 
Well, an average temperature drop of 5 or 10 degrees is extremely dangerous. Yes. And, and not only that, but it interrupted. It, it knocked uh, the uh, uh, food chain uh, out of whack, and the dinosaurs lost their food source and right. so on. So the dinosaurs were wiped out. Uh, there's a belief that man uh, uh, was also living at the time, at least by the tail end of the existence of dinosaurs, you know. Uh, but, you know, when we say man, it was probably a very, very primitive man, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but nevertheless, a man, you know, uh, of some type. So, you know, five times... Uh, it's nearly wiped out and then brought back. I can't think of the name of the book. I had a book written down that really went into detail and was interesting. It uh, it was profound as far as these different time periods, you know, and the different uh-huh. species that came back because the earth was ever so slightly changed, you know, so the species would be different. Every species, it's, it's, it's a matter, you know, how you've heard the strongest shall survive that's true and you either adapt or you die it's as right. simple as that you know uh yes i hate to see the species uh uh become extinct but there are several species that uh, that uh, even in the last 100 200 years have become extinct they're gone and then on top of that there are species of living creatures both on land and in the sea that we've discovered in the last 10 years. We didn't know existed. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I don't know. And there, there may still be a number of things that we're not aware uh, uh, that exist. And, of course, I'm not talking about the Yeti or the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, what is that, uh, that elusive uh, creature that uh, uh, walks yeah, no. yeah. You know, I'm I'm not talking about that necessarily. I'm just simply talking about the various life forms that uh, uh you know that uh, that roam about. So, it it's uh, for me um I don't get into the the necessary uh uh point of view where uh uh I I like to look at it as a climate change. You know, right. not uh, anything to do with heat or anything like that necessarily. Um, uh, climate change, but it's been changing uh, for many years since uh, the late '60s. We've had mild winters. I'm, I'm in Michigan, so I can vouch for uh, what the winters have been like. And there wasn't uh-huh. very much snow, and people were, uh, you know, well, this isn't too bad, and all that. And then we had a couple years there not so long ago where, my God, we're breaking all kinds of records, not only in temperature, but in depth of snow. And the snow lingered. And many cities had to, uh, you know, scramble and get the necessary equipment to, uh, you know, rid the highways of, of this snow. Because, you know, over time, they felt it wasn't necessary, so they uh, uh, they got rid of the equipment. Well, I, you know, there's no need to have it. Uh, <laughs> they didn't purchase any new equipment or whatever, you know. So there's, there's changes there. Um, one thing that I noticed and is occurring right now, and I'm sure that you've, you've heard about Hurricane Dorian, 
uh, uh, yeah. down in the uh, Bahamas that's heading towards Florida and the Carolinas and Georgia and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It seems as though every year we have hurricanes, okay, whereas for many years we did not have hurricanes every single year. Now it's a reoccurrence every year. It's hurricane right. season, you know. Um this may be uh, due to the uh, the climate change. And, of course, you hear about uh, the polar ice cap is melting and, uh, and things like that. I don't know how true any of this is or how relevant it is to, uh, uh, you know, the future in the next 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years. I really don't know. I remember I had a magazine uh, that I saw that was uh, published back in the 60s, the front cover said, uh, we're headed for the next ice age. (laughs) I remember reading something about that, too. You know, global warming, uh, I'm not so sure it's the warming, necessarily. I'm sure that it's a global change. Uh, I think maybe the Earth is warming. Uh, Another thing that we hear about is the Amazon uh, rainforest. Okay. Yes. Yes, and 20% of the Earth's oxygen comes from, is generated by uh, the Amazon. Interesting note, when I was a kid, uh, uh, I was in the hospital uh, uh, when I was, I think, about 10 years old. I had rheumatic fever and nearly died from it. But anyway, uh, uh, you would see plants in the room. Okay, flowers and what have you uh, in rooms during the day. At night, they would take these plants out of the rooms. Why do you suppose that is? Why is that? Well, as it was explained to me, plants, trees, and what have you uh, use carbon dioxide during the day, and they give off oxygen. However, at night, the opposite is true. They use oxygen and they give off carbon dioxide. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, this is what I was told back in the day. I'm sure uh, some of your listeners may be aware of that. Any botanist or anyone anyone, uh, in the science field might be able to uh, you know, reaffirm that. Uh, of course, going on the internet, you can find out uh, details about that. But yes, uh, plants uh, uh, give off a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, oxygen and what have you, and the rainforests certainly uh, 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 contribute to the oxygen on the on, on Earth. Um, as far as the carbon dioxide and and, uh, and the things, and I, I keep hearing people beat up on man as uh, is the reason for this and what have you. Well, let me tell you something. Speaking of annual events, out west, California, every year they have forest fires, serious forest fires, that give off a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide through the smoke and what have you. It's an ongoing thing. It has been going on uh, probably since the beginning. It's a natural event that thins the herd, so to speak, as far as plants and trees and what have you. 
I remember uh, when my my boys were in Boy Scouts, we helped one of the uh, one of the things that we did when we were backpacking and camping and what have you. We went to a uh, forest and we worked with conservation and we helped thin out the trees in a particular area. You had big trees and you had small trees. You had a lot of trees, little saplings, you know, everywhere, a foot apart, six inches apart, what have you, three feet apart. And then you had these big uh, 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 older trees. Well, it was our job to go in there and and, uh, thin these smaller trees so the larger trees could thrive. Because if you don't do that, the larger trees will die. Okay? Right. This was a phenomenon, and this was, uh, uh, you know, there was a, uh, I can't think of the uh, words for it. It's uh, you sacrifice a few, so so uh, uh, the larger can live. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that that's right. And 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 this went on. So a lot of these things that uh, that occur, natural uh, disasters, so to speak, they're a disaster in a way. For our life, livelihood, because we're living in a particular area, say the hurricane area, you know, down on the east coast, you know, all the way around, uh, even in uh, Louisiana, when they had the the problem with, uh, what was it, Hurricane uh, Katrina? I believe so. And uh, they had a problem with the, uh, uh, with the... uh, Dikes in uh, uh, New Orleans. Okay, the money that was allotted for that, they uh, somehow used it for something else. They didn't uh, maintain the dikes properly, and uh, you had massive flooding. Now the thing is, New Orleans is at the mouth of the uh, Mississippi, and the Mississippi River uh, is constantly moving. And the silt underneath the Mississippi uh, is constantly moving. Mississippi Mm -hmm. will constantly erode that. So what they did in the early days is they uh, shored up with the dikes, okay? Mm -hmm. I believe New Orleans, and I may not have the exact figure, but I believe it's 16 feet below sea level. So what you have there is your um, your augmenting uh, with an artificial wall, Mother Nature. It should have been flooded years and years ago. And it's constantly, uh, New Orleans is constantly getting deeper because of that erosion. So uh, all these things taken into account... Uh, it, uh, man comes in and, and uh, 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 creates an artificial living area. It's not natural to have that dike there. Uh, it's not natural, for example, along the uh, eastern seaboard. Uh, you know, you have people living close to the ocean. Well, occasionally a hurricane is going to come in or, say, even further in inland, you're going to have tornadoes or what have you, mm-hmm. you know. And and people are and I understand. I, but believe me, I have all the compassion in the world. Where you know somebody's home, uh, entire neighborhoods are wiped out. 
But what I think I'm trying to say is this is a natural phenomenon. Now, you may not have another tornado or hurricane there for decades, but the fact is here it is, and it's now, you know. Um, well, same old is true in the northern areas. You know, you have frigid cold, you know. People, uh, you know, are uh, you know uh, are caught in the uh, in the natural environment and freeze to death. Right. Or they go out in the desert and they uh, they die of uh, you know all sorts of uh, um, uh, die of thirst or whatever whatever you know hypothermia uh, you know and and, uh, and uh, you know stuff like that. So uh, as far as the change of uh, climate, yes, but it's been going on. For decades, you know, we've only recorded history. Uh, we've only recorded weather since I think the 1880s, where we've really, right. you know, every every day we have recorded things around the the country. Okay, and uh, you know, and that was that was pretty uh, 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 elementary. Now we have all sorts of things where we can. Uh, we can measure uh, earthquakes. There's another natural phenomenon, you know. Uh, volcanoes, you know. Uh, it's, you know, it's frightening because uh, uh, um, how powerful nature is. And right. we're here and we have to adapt. Like I said earlier, you adapt or you die, you know. Or you die, And, yes. and sometimes the adaptation uh, is uh, it, you know presents a great deal of uh, of uh, difficulty. That's I'm not very, trying to uh, preach any type of gloom and doom. But I'm just trying to uh, you know share with you some of my observations of what I have I, seen. I, I and, uh, those because uh, um, there are a lot of narratives out there where people are taking uh, facts uh, and mm-hmm. painting different pictures and oh, sure. the pictures of course, have agendas behind them, which you can't always see. Um, so this is a very empowering and enlightened way of looking uh, at the whole circumstance. Uh, because if it is like nature, and it is, because as you point out, there have been major extinction events, and the Earth does go through these uh, changes, not just recently, but throughout my life. I remember having like five, six feet of snow in New York, New York City and uh, things like that, you know, really extreme uh, weather. Um, so <laughs> well, these things do yeah. come and go. Um, if, you but, live, uh, if, if you live anywhere near Buffalo, you know, Buffalo uh-huh. would laugh at Michigan. You know, I've seen some of their equipment. I've seen some of their snowfalls. I've seen some of their roads where the snow, you know, they're giant pieces of equipment that will, that will plow and, and keep the snow at bay. My gosh, some of these uh, 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 walls of snow are ten feet high. Yeah. <laughs> and we we'll we'll sit here and, and we'll complain about twenty four inches of snow. To them, that's t-shirt weather, you know. <laughs> what do we know about snow? But they're in a particular area right. that uh, that uh, you know catches the snow. It's just it's just how it is. But they over over uh, you know hundreds of years. They have adapted to living there, and the people that have lived there, you know, generation after generation, they're comfortable with it. They know what to expect every winter. There's no surprise to them. There's going to be a lot of snow. Now, you either 
if if uh, uh, someone moves to Buffalo, they'll simply explain, look, <laughs> we're going to get a lot of snow come this winter. If you don't like it, we suggest you move somewhere else. <laughs> right. You know, you know, that's just how it is. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's right. And uh, I think it is healthier to look at uh, since we started studying weather patterns to see what's likely to happen uh, and to increase awareness for people coming in. Um, I knew a lot of people who went to Florida and retired um, years ago um, with everything they had uh, tied into houses that they bought down in Florida, only to have hurricanes destroy the, the houses and the developments that they're in. And, uh, again, it's very, it's very sad. It's very compassionate. But those are corridors through which hurricanes are known to have uh, passed on occasion. Sure. So You know, I, and like I said earlier about uh... – uh, New Orleans, I think it's a tragedy that those people lost their homes. I mean, it, it just breaks my heart. And as far as rebuilding it, I'm all for that. However, I would somehow either raise the level of that area, the 16 feet or whatever it is, or I would move New Orleans to a place where it is at sea level where the ground is already mm. at sea level rather than sit there and tempt fate again. If you don't right. think it's going to happen again, you're a fool. It will happen again. Everything repeats itself, you know, and the same holds true with the forest fires. You go out in, uh, in California, people's homes are wiped out the entire neighborhood. They're lucky if they get out of there with their lives. You have mudslides, you have earthquakes, Okay, if you want to live there, if it's worth it to you to live there, understand that that is that's part of the game. It's just how that area is. It'd be like living on in the Bahamas. What they're going through right now, you've got a level uh, a, a category five hurricane. <laughs> now, right uh, when the hurricane is gone, the dust settles literally. You've got a choice, either rebuild and stay there or go somewhere else. Now, I'm not saying that that's an easy thing to do because different areas have different cultures. Some people are happy with that type of climate. They love it in the Bahamas. They love it in Florida. Uh, They love it in Michigan or New York or Canada or, or Southern California or living near the ocean. Great. But understand that it comes with a price tag. Occasionally, there's going to be a blip in the radar, or you know, you got to hunker down, take your best hold, and hope like hell you come out alive. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, 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 you know that's that's essentially how it is. Um, but as far as like I said earlier, with the carbon dioxide, man uh, contributing to it. You know, we can here in America, we can we can make all the adjustments and take all the precautions with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, being more eco-friendly and not attacking the ozone with the carbon dioxide and oh whatever else. But keep in mind, we have other countries that are just starting to industrialize, like China or India. In Mexico, uh, China uh, is our 
our biggest uh, uh, exporter of uh, mm-hmm. of goods to this country. And and uh, what are they doing? I have no idea. You know, I I certainly don't don't uh, 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 take everything that the that the media tells me as gospel. Right. I don't really know what they're doing over there. I don't know how uh, how they treat the environment. You know, um, so no matter what we do. You know, if we want fresh air here and what have you, the trade winds change and they blow whatever is over China over us. You know, right. so unless everybody in the in the world gets on the same page, it's a futile attempt. Yes. But I'm not, again, I'm not trying to wax uh, uh, any type of negative, uh, the world's coming to an end and all that stuff. It's just, I'm, I'm just trying to explain this is what I, uh, what I have seen in my lifetime, you know, and uh, 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 have observed in over 60 years. Okay, I can remember back in the 50s how things were, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and how everybody treated everything and how everybody reacted to everything. I remember when <laughs> when we used to have have uh, 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 drills, you know, all the children would hide under their desk. What the hell good is that going to do? Hiding under your desk, you know, nothing you're not much. safe under your desk. And nowadays we look back at that and we laugh. You know, uh, uh, in the fifties during the Cold War, uh, uh, there were people who had bomb shelters. We had a neighbor who had a bomb shelter. Oh, he bought one. Uh-huh. Got it in the backyard. You know, well, okay, you know, that made him happy. How many bomb shelters do people have nowadays? People realize that that bomb shelter has a limitation. You know, instead of dying today, you're going to die in six months. <laughs> yeah. You know? So I don't know, uh, you know, what their thinking is, but God bless them if that's what they want to do. Um, but uh, when, it, when it comes to to adapting, uh, human beings uh, are, are pretty good at it. Like I say, uh, we have gone through uh, several stages uh, on Earth, not all of the stages uh five uh, i think there's five different times nearly everything was wiped out and the and the earth was changed dramatically where uh, we were involved a man was involved in at least one of those you know mm-hmm. uh so you can just imagine the type of uh, uh wildlife that existed uh before any one of those you know and 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 again uh, uh wildlife uh, the cardinal rule is the strongest shall survive. You either adapt or you become extinct. It's just simply that way. Animals look like they like they do, and they behave like they do to survive. You know, right? It's uh, you know, what, what is it? What is the saying? Uh, uh, function dictates form. You know, why does a rhinoceros have a horn on the front of it? You know, why does uh, you know why why do uh, the big cats like lions and tigers have the claws and the teeth, and are so svelte and uh, are so fast? You know, why are rabbits so fast? You know, uh, 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 there are predators and there are prey. You know, I, I don't think a rabbit is a predator for anything but a carrot. You know. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, but it, it certainly is prey for any number of uh, animals. Same way with birds. Birds fly. They can get off the ground where many other animals can't uh, can't get them. Uh, we are definitely predators. 
Uh, there's no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah. By, by virtue of the fact that our, our eyes are in front, um, mm-hmm. um, we are upright. We have uh, being able to stand upright, which I'm not so sure is such a good idea uh, uh, as far as uh, uh, longevity. By that freeze our hands, we have opposing, uh, uh, you know, digits, so we can grab things and what, and we can manipulate our environment. Uh, 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 we we don't see at night. We we don't have the cones uh, in in our eyes, like for example, at the cats or the owls or, uh, uh, you know, creatures uh-huh. like that have. But we we do have the uh, the ability. Uh, like I say, to manipulate our environment. And uh, I think because of our teeth, uh, I think uh, we were meant to, uh, we are omnivores. And let me say something about this, uh, about about nutrition and um, foodstuffs and what have you. You know, some people will say, well, birds, uh, birds for the most part uh, are vegetarians. Or apes and monkeys are are vegetarians. Okay? Mostly. Uh, mostly. But, you know, the one thing that determines what a creature will consume is availability. I have seen birds, uh, I'm talking about just, uh, you know, uh, uh, say crows, uh, starlings, uh, smaller birds than that, they'll be pecking away at, a roadkill, you know, where you would think, wait, this uh, this is a bird. They're, they don't do that. They, you know, uh, vegetation or what have you. Uh, and I suppose some some birds eat worms and things like that. Um, bears, bears will eat anything isn't nailed down. Anything. Right. Pigs, pigs will eat anything. Pigs are very very. Uh, 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 close in uh, uh, demand. Yes, they uh, are. Uh, so it, it, I think it's a matter of availability. You know, we can sit here, and I, I've heard people say, well, you know, why do people eat uh, the, the way they do? Well, a lot of it is a matter of economics, which, of course, is tied directly into availability. You right. know. Uh, well, I think people, you know, I've heard people say, well, I, th- I don't think people should eat as much carbohydrates uh, and and, and uh, be more uh, 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 careful about eating, uh, you know, meat and high-protein diets and stuff like that. I once talked to the great John Grimmick, Mr. America, you know, twice Mr. America, undefeated in bodybuilding, uh, Olympic uh, weightlifter and what have you. Mm-hmm. He trained during the 1930s, Okay. And and uh, I asked him about that one time about uh, you know food and what have you. He says, "Let me tell you something. We were lucky we had food, any food. We were not picky." He said, "We ate what we could get our hands on. Times were tough. You know, jobs were few, and that's the truth. I mean, you know, if you stop and think about it. For example, mm-hmm. Japan is an island. Okay, it has Japanese people." Predominantly, okay? Right. They have rice. They're surrounded with water. And what's in the water? Fish. Fish. So they have a diet high in seafood. 
Why? Yeah. Because the sea is completely in, encompass them. And, and, and the same is true with uh, the West Coast and the East Coast of the United States, or even in Florida. There, there are, no. yeah, the, the availability of seafood. Okay. Um, if you go to the middle of the country where you don't have the ocean, you're nowhere near the ocean, and in many cases you're nowhere near any lakes of any consequence, but you have corn, you have wheat. If you go into Texas, you have um, um, uh, beef. Beef is a big deal down there, okay? So uh, people eat beef, and they're, they're raised on it. If you are raised a certain way, uh, uh, with a certain uh, diet based on availability and tradition. Tradition has a lot to do with it. Thanksgiving, people have turkeys. You know, right. um, uh, in certain areas, geographical areas, people have uh, 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 certain foods. Um, but this is this is how people. Uh, 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 should look at it. it it's just it is very important to remember the availability and economics plays into it you know uh, uh, some people simply uh, are trying to you know scratch their way by and, and you know they don't have a, a lot of money to uh, 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 to, to spend on food if, or maybe they have uh, several children they have several mouths to feed you know so and, and uh, again tradition uh, uh, plays into that uh, uh, in, in different areas, the, the Chinese eat certain food. Here in the United States, milk is prevalent. Now you go to Italy or France and, and places like that where they're knee deep in grapes. Wine yeah. is a big deal. Go ahead, ask for a glass of milk. You know they're going to laugh at you. What are you drinking milk for? We got wine. Germany, you have beer, and beer originally was brewed as a foodstuff. Okay. Yes. Uh, and and as a, as as a uh, as a beverage, okay. Um, and so the, all of these things have to be taken in consideration uh, with uh, uh, nutrition. Training is 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 another thing. You know, if you have a job where you're sedentary, okay, not much physical activity, you are going to train a little different and get a little different response than if you have a very physical job, like a construction worker, uh, any type of, uh, you know, skilled trades, dock workers, anywhere there's, a, you know, uh, uh, furniture movers and stuff like that, where you have to, you know, uh, uh, you know, stay on top of your game physically, you know. So right. there's, there's, there's different types of, of uh, training, you know. Uh, you know, like the guy that's working all day, lifting heavy. Now, what's he going to do? Go home and lift again? You know, it's like a mailman. What does he do when he goes home? Go for a walk? He's been walking all day. <laughs> walking all day, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, um, uh, and a lot of it has to do with how your body responds. Some people can thrive training every day, believe it or not. Uh, now, they don't train super heavy every day. They'll burn right. out, but there are people that that uh, that will learn that, and then they will cut back. If they want to train every day. Go ahead, try it out. Doesn't work? Then try uh, you know three three times a week or two times a week, or <clears throat> with some routines, one time a week, depending upon what the training is. 
and how heavy the resistance is. How many repetitions? How many sets, if any? You know, I know people that train one set. They never do multiple sets, and it works for them. So if the train is going in the right direction, why do you want to get off? Why do you want to change? See? And and uh, I've often said that. I, I've, I've often said if the if the routine is working for you, that's the best routine for now. For now. For now. Because everything works until it doesn't. And uh, I don't care what routine it is. Again, human beings have been around for eons. And the last thing you want to have happen is that you adapt to a routine. Once you adapt to it, you'll get comfortable with it. You're not going to... You're you're not going to progress. You're not going to get any uh, any stronger. You have to shake things up. I I agree wholeheartedly. Would you like to take a short break, or do you want to keep going? Sure. Okay, we'll take a short break, and then we'll be back with the legendary Bill Hinburn speaking common sense. Children, the cauldron born. 
Welcome back to Voice of Olympus. Um, I am Hercules, and today my voice is kind of compromised, but I am here with a legendary 
excuse me. I'm here with the legendary Bill Hinburn of Super Strength uh, Training, who's giving us a common sense approach on some of the changes uh, that we're experiencing and believing different things about. Greetings and welcome. Glad you're back. Thank you. I'm glad I'm back too. Now, the perspective that you uh, presented is like all the perspectives that you present. It's very balanced. Uh, it's very common sense. Uh, it's involved on not only the experience of others, but on your own personal experience. Uh, and it takes change into account, which a lot of uh, um, ways of looking at the world and doing things do not take change into the account. They're trying to sell you the one true way. And that's the only way, and there is no other way. And uh, if you're not making progress, you're doing it wrong, or you're not putting as much energy into it. And I find that uh, very uh, um, refreshing uh, when trying to plot the, the future out. Um, I found in my working out, because I'm redefining the way I work out, um, I've incorporated a lot of uh, muscle control and isometrics and with what I do to become aware of the muscles. Uh, as I'm working out to put as much awareness into them as I can to feel everything that I'm feeling. And also I try to maximize what I'm going to do anyway. So for instance, if I have things I need to move up and down stairs, I'll put on uh, ankle weights, wrist weights, and a weighted vest. And by the time I finish um, moving boxes or whatever else I'm moving up and down stairs, I've given myself the most amazing leg routine because uh, I, I will I will feel it uh, everywhere and then I'll cement it with the uh, um, isometrics and the isotonics and the muscle control and uh, my legs will have gotten their workout for the week yeah it's uh, it's no secret many of the uh, uh, exercises used by uh, professional athletes or even collegial collegiate athletes uh, is a simulation of some of the movements they do uh, while they are competing. And, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you know, many of these things are helpful. Although uh, some of the exercises, I don't see how they would, uh, uh, are, are, uh, are, are really good. For example, I think the bench press is overrated, way overrated. And and uh, I don't think it does anything. Uh, I don't think it uh, it simulates anything um, uh, in uh, in many of the uh, uh, sports. Uh, squats I think will always play a good part. I think push-ups are good. Again, bench pressing is uh, you know you're you're doing the. Um, um, uh, bench press you're doing the uh, 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 I believe it's called supine, the supine press okay uh, and the opposite of that I think is the uh, oh it's another word I can't think of it the incline bench, the decline bench the supine yeah, but when you're, well when you're uh, when you're face down okay is that like rolling? face up yeah, well, with with a bench press, uh, uh, your elbows go below uh, below parallel, which plays uh, 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 um, a great deal of strain on your shoulder joints. And over time, you know, uh, there are many people that have rotator cuff issues because of that. Whereas if you're doing push-ups, you're not going to have that problem. 
as much. And, and furthermore, you're not going to use as much uh, resistance. You know, it's purely body weight. Um, I think that uh, uh, a chinning bar is an excellent uh, source for body weight exercises. You can get a tremendous workout with a uh, uh, simply with a chinning bar and the floor and gravity. That's it. Using the uh, the exercises that I mentioned, you know, a push up and uh, doing uh, you know body weight squats and doing uh, either chin ups or pull ups. I tried uh, the uh, I have two chin up bars and uh, my door frame won't support them very well, so I had to wrap them up and keep them in the basement until I get better door door frames. But um, <laughs> I was I was enjoying doing that, but the the door frames uh, did not look like they can take that for very long. So uh, yeah, you got to be it. very careful. Yes, but uh, yeah, that's an excellent exercise. I've done that in the past, and um, I used to like doing leg lifts a lot as well as the the chin-ups on the chin-up bar. Oh, indeed. Now, uh, uh, many of the exercises that uh, 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 leg lifts, uh, sit-ups, a lot of people say sit-ups are bad, that there's other, you know, crunches are good. Uh, you go through a phase where, okay, crunches are no good anymore. Now you do uh, 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 another exercise for, for the abs that somebody comes up with, and that becomes in, in vogue, so to speak. Uh, uh, the important thing is how you feel the next day. If you feel a certain soreness in the correct area, then you know whatever exercises you're doing uh, are beneficial. You know, a mild soreness. Yeah, and the rotor cuff problem you mentioned, uh, I have problems with that occasionally. And I found over the years ways of working around it where I don't aggravate the rotor cuff. Uh, and uh, exercise I could do that might normally aggravate my rotor cuff, uh, using elastic bands, for instance, or using um, weights less than 25 pounds. If I stick with that and increase the number of, uh, uh, of sets and reps and use the elastic bands, I'll get a good uh, um, rotor cuff uh, workout without uh, injuring myself. Certainly. Yeah, it's it's important uh, to warm up. Uh, I, I've tried to get this message across um, as as far as uh, proper warm up for any type of exercise. Okay, and and uh, stretching is important. It's important to do stretching very slowly, okay? Uh, As we age, especially after 40, uh, stretching becomes vital. Uh, You want to remain limber. You don't want to stiffen up. And as you age, um, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old, you will uh, gradually lose muscle mass. Yes. Uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before. Did I ever uh, discuss suspenders with you? Uh, a little bit, but say it again. Suspenders are, in, are an interesting observation. You'll you'll notice uh, el- elderly gentlemen wearing suspenders. Well, there's a reason for that. Okay, they lose their glutes. Um, um, glutes. Yes. Yeah. The muscle mass, the large muscle mass, you'll notice that their their shoulders get narrow, their deltoids 
uh, their traps, uh, and uh, the glutes, okay? So essentially, they pull their pants up, and uh, uh, if they don't have any hips, okay, and they don't have any glutes, the pants just simply fall off. So they have to wear uh, uh, suspenders, okay? This is probably the main person purpose, and and they also develop a paunch in front. You know, it's a, it's just a, 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 a unless there's exercise being done to maintain, to try to maintain, uh, 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 the the muscle mass. And I'm not saying it's a futile attempt, but you're certainly not going to have the muscle mass at uh, say 70 that you did when you were 35. You know, and, it's just and uh, it's just how it is. Yeah, that is very true. It's difficult to accept, but you have to accept it. You have to face the reality that's before you and adapt, or uh, uh, that's yep. it. You know, injure yourself, and uh, um, in my 60s, injuring myself would be a much bigger deal uh, than it right. would be if I was uh, one or two decades uh, younger. I'm looking at the clock. I enjoy uh, hearing you speak so much. I, I haven't been keeping track of the time today. Um, how can folks... Uh, visit your site and subscribe to your newsletter because that newsletter is like the advice you've given today, uh, very balanced, very common sense, uh, and directs you to what resources uh, um, you have that can expand your knowledge there. Um, and well, uh, go ahead. Yes, they can. Uh, they can uh, look at my website. It's at www.superstrengthtraining.com. And on every page in the right-hand corner or somewhere on the page, you will see um, um, a sign-up box. And uh, your first and last name and your email address. And then click subscribe. Uh, And uh, you should get a uh, free daily email nearly every day. Uh, mm-hmm. On all sorts of uh, variety of topics, uh, you know, uh, and again, just exactly like what you said, just like what we're talking about. I discuss all sorts of topics. A lot of the old-time strongmen. I, I've discussed about uh, whey protein. I've discussed about uh, 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 many uh, pieces of equipment, how they got, uh, who invented them, uh, how they're used, and what have you. A lot of the old-timers, uh, the biographies, how they trained, etc. So it's an interesting uh, newsletter, and I have a, a wealth of uh, 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 training publications. Some are very obscure, hard to find, and very valuable information that quite yes. simply works. It, it does work, and I can vouch for that. And um, as you know, I'm the champion of fitness in my uh, borough here, Tenafly, and in mid-month we're having um, our traditional community night. And I'm going to be representing the mayor's uh, wellness campaign. Uh, If you have a flyer or something you can send me the PDF of, um, I'll gladly print some and keep them on the table. And this way more people can uh, uh, explore the treasures that you're offering. Terrific. I'll do that. Okay. Thank you very much. This has been a very fun and informative uh, hour. Do you have any last words of wisdom you care to offer to our audience? No, uh, uh, remain upbeat, positive. There you go. Uh, the world's the world's not coming to an end, like everyone would have you believe, with the uh, with the climate change and what have you. Uh, uh, be kind to each other, and have a great day. 
there you go. And doing those things will give you a much better life than the life you have now. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, Have an awesome day, and thank you for being such a wonderful guest on the show. Thank you very kindly. I enjoyed it. Good evening. Good evening, and thanks to those who've been paying attention uh, um, from home, uh, tuning in on the, the podcast. Thank you for being with us, and I hope this evening was as wonderful for you as it's been for me. for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.